If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Ezekiel chapter 9. In studying a book like Ezekiel, there are certain questions that need to be answered. And at least two of them are time and place. That is, when did the prophet write what he wrote? Or when did he receive the visions that he did? And where was he when all these things happened? These are mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. When did he receive it? If you go back to the first chapter, at the very beginning, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kiba River, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. Okay. Later, we see, we saw it last Sunday, chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting with me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me there. So the book opens on the fifth day of the fourth month of the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, C-H-I-N, who was in exile in Babylon. More on this in a bit. Chapter 8 takes place 14 months later, exactly 14 months later, the fifth day, sixth month, sixth year. Ezekiel is quite precise in spelling this out, the timing of the visions. So that's the time of it. But what is the place of it? Where was he? Well, as we read, he was by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. That is, it is a tributary off the Euphrates River. That's where they had been taken in exile by Nebuchadnezzar. And then in chapter 8, he was actually in his house, but he lived near the Kibar River, so we know the location. Just to be clear, and that's why I mention this, this is not once upon a time. Okay, or better yet, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, this is Ezekiel saying time and place. But for many people today, it might as well be a galaxy far, far away, once upon a time. But it doesn't have to be the way, that way. The scripture and history help us to locate Ezekiel in his time and place. If you'll bear with me, let me give you a timeline that will help us orient ourselves as to when and where Ezekiel was. First, let me just tell you that the whole BC thing confuses me, you know, because, you know, in AD, it's, you know, one, two, three, four, five, but in the BC, it counts down, okay? Not that people were thinking that way because they didn't know that, oh, the Messiah is coming and that will be the turning point of history, but as we look back at time and we try to give it dates, it, it progressively gets smaller and smaller, okay? So a person who was born in 700 BC, who lived to be 100 years old, would have died in 600 BC, okay? Not 800, okay? Whereas a person who was born in 700 AD, who lived to be 100, would have died in 800 AD. The period we're looking at is the BC era, um, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes to the north of Israel who had rebelled against uh, the throne of David in Jerusalem, they were taken into exile in 722 by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, where Jerusalem was, they continued for more than a century after that. But after 100 years, it was a very chaotic time for Judah. It seemed, if you would read a secular history, that they were merely a pawn 
uh, being used by different world powers. Egypt was on the ascendancy, Babylon was too, they were sort of duking it out, and in between them was Judah, the Jews. And so they sort of got bounced back and forth. In 609 BC, Jehoiakim okay, was made king by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Uh, Necho had killed King Josiah. And so he said, okay, now you belong to me. You're my vassal, and I decide who your king will be. Okay. Um, he was a vassal, Jehoiakim was, for four years, 605. And he switched alliances because Babylon then became more powerful. In fact, Babylon had defeated Egypt. And so he became, by the way, if you know your history, the Battle of Carchemish, a very famous battle, is where Babylon began, began to be a world power. Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, and Jehoiakim says, okay, I'm your vassal, I'll do whatever you want. He gave him tribute, he gave him some of the vessels from the temple, and some of the royal family and nobility, one of those being Daniel, along with his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, or we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This happened in 605. Okay. Four years later, Babylon tried to invade Egypt, and it didn't work. So Jehoiakim switched again his alliances to Egypt. Three years later, Babylon was more powerful. This time they besieged Jerusalem one more time. This is in 598. They were successful. Jehoiakim died, by the way, during that siege. And about 10,000 people were taken into exile. One of them was Ezekiel. So you have the first group of exiles. You have the second group of exiles. There will be one more period. There will be one more fall of Jerusalem. That is about nine years later. Um, in between those, the second and the third is where Ezekiel lives. He began to receive visions five years after Jerusalem had fallen. So that's 587. Okay? No. See, I tell you the BC thing throws me. That's 592. Okay? And he's talking about, he's receiving visions about that third time that Jerusalem will fall finally and the temple will be destroyed. Okay? So, Daniel was with the first group, Ezekiel with the second group, okay? Did they know each other? That's an interesting question. We are not told, okay? Um, it could be that they were in different parts of the empire. Uh, Daniel was higher up among the officials, the administration. We don't know uh, what Ezekiel did beyond being a prophet. Um, but it is worth noting that Daniel is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel several times. The word of the Lord came to me. This is chapter 14. Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply and send famine upon it to kill its men and animals, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. And then this is mentioned again. But in chapter 28, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. 
I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. Are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? Now, in each of these cases, it is God who mentions Daniel's name. But Ezekiel must have known who that was, because otherwise it makes no sense. So they may not have met each other, but Ezekiel certainly knew of Daniel. So Daniel and Ezekiel are in Babylon. They're not in the Holy Land. They're not in the Promised Land anymore. Is there anybody left back there who is a prophet? Absolutely. Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet before the first exile, after the first exile, before the second, after the second exile, and even after the third when Jerusalem was finally destroyed. Jeremiah is the prophet. And Daniel mentions Jeremiah in Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So Daniel knew about the prophecy that Jeremiah had spoken, that for 70 years Jerusalem would be desolate. All of this is to help us recognize, I hope, that what we are studying really happened. It happened in a real place at a very particular time. It's not some type of fairy tale. It's not once upon a time. It's very, very specific. And Ezekiel tells us this. By the way, this is one of the benefits of the part of scripture we don't really care for. That's the genealogies. All those names that we probably mispronounce, just name after name after. These are people. These are individuals. And they are people who face the same temptations, I would argue, that we do, and face many of the same problems that we do as well. And all of this points to the reality that God is real as well. It isn't just people, but God as well. Last week, we looked at chapters 6, 7, and 8, in which the issue is the idolatry of the people of Israel. In chapter 6, Ezekiel is told by the Lord to prophesy against the mountains of Judah. What did the mountains ever do? Well, that's where these altars were to the false gods, where people would go and worship. God says, there will be judgment for your idolatry. But the judgment, we need to be very careful here. We tend to equate judgment with condemnation. Sometimes that's the case. Or judgment with punishment, which that can be the case. But it is also instructive. And so we hear this recurring theme. You will know that I am the Lord. The purpose of God judging and correcting Judah is that they would know that he is the Lord. And there was a word of hope that some people, in fact, would be spared. In chapter 7, we have three oracles. The theme there is, it's over. The end has come. The end, the end has come. And what can the people of Jerusalem do? This will be the third time that Nebuchadnezzar would come against Jerusalem. What could they do? Absolutely nothing. Because God is against them. And there is nothing that they can do to survive. It is in chapter 8 where we find the true nature of idolatry. It is adultery. It is a mixing of the worship of God with the worship of idols. Uh, 
There are people who only worship idols, okay? But oftentimes we see God's people drifting, backsliding, when they use the worship of God along with the worship of idols. So that our worship of God is to get what we want from God rather than to worship him for who he is. The result is judgment. And today what we will look at uh, in chapters 9, 10, 11 are the judgment. If you look at the end of chapter 8, verse number 18, Therefore I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. God is angry for their idolatry, for their adultery, and he is going to judge them. Chapters 9, 10, 11 spell this out. They flesh it out. Before we get into chapter 9, there's another question that comes up when, it deal, when we deal with prophecies, and that is, are they to be taken literally? Or are they figurative? Are they metaphorical? Are they symbolic? Um, a brief answer is they, they are not always to be taken literally, but we will see this as we go along. And uh, rather than dealing with it now, I will deal with it as we come to it later on. First two verses. Ezekiel's in a vision state at this point. We're told that at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day. That's chapter 8, okay? So now, well, let me keep reading. Uh, This is chapter 8, verse 3. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem. So in chapter 8, he is taken to Jerusalem. Chapter 9, he's still there in this vision state. Look at verse 1. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, bring the guards of the city here, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. These are the seven executioners. One of them doesn't have a weapon. He has a writing kit. He's writing down names, and he will be putting a mark on people's foreheads. Just a side note, I think the NIV is actually quite weak here. It refers to the six as guards. Other translations have executioners. Um, And the NIV has that they had a weapon or deadly weapon. Other translations are more graphic. The ESV is destroying weapon, weapon for slaughter. So we might think, oh, they have like a little sword or something. Whatever they have, it is meant to kill. Okay, it is meant to slaughter people. And they come from the bronze altar. That's in front of the temple. You have the temple and then you have the bronze altar outside. These men are there. Okay, here are their instructions. Verse three. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherubim where it had been, and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to the others, Follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men and maidens, women and children. But do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. 
Then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go. So they went out and began killing throughout the city. A difficult passage. We are told in the book of Exodus that Moses is given instructions to build the tabernacle. But he's also to build the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of it were to be two cherubim, two cherubs. Okay? And in between them was the mercy seat, and there would be the presence of God. So now as our passage opens, the presence of God, which is between the cherubim, actually leaves. It leaves the Ark of the Covenant. And it comes out to the front door to the threshold of the, ta- of the temple. This is important because this is actually the first part of a journey in which God is going to leave Jerusalem. He is going to abandon his people because of their idolatry. In Second uh, Kings 19, King Hezekiah gets a letter from the Assyrians saying, you know, we're going to kill you. Your God is nothing. And he goes and he prays and he says, O Lord God, enthroned between the cherubim. That God's presence is seen as being between these two cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant. The Lord gives instructions. He leaves and he gives instructions to the man with, who's dressed in white linen. That he is to go throughout the city and find everyone who mourns and laments over the detestable things that are done in Jerusalem. One would assume Jeremiah was one of these people. And he is to put a mark on their forehead. Okay. Then the six guys, the true executioners, they are to follow him. And whoever doesn't have a mark on his head, <coughs> excuse me, they're to kill him. And old men, young men, maidens, women, children, if they do not have a mark on their forehead, they are to be killed. The six are to begin at the temple with the elders. The elders were mentioned in chapter 8. If you were with us last Sunday, there are, are in fact, 70 elders of Judah who are there, and they are, in fact, worshiping false gods. The number 70 is really important because that's the number of men who helped Moses. By the way, in the New Testament, that's the number of disciples Jesus sent out to preach. So they are taking something that is good and holy, and they are making it something that is profane. And so that's where the killing is to begin. And in killing them, the temple is going to be defiled. Human blood defiles the temple. And, but God says, start here and go throughout the city. And that's what they did. How would you react? Look at verse number 8 to see Ezekiel's reaction. While they were killing and I was left alone, I fell face down crying out, Ah, sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? A bunch were taken with Daniel. 10,000 were taken with Ezekiel. You don't have a lot of people left in Jerusalem. And yet God is sending out these six men to kill everyone who doesn't have the mark on their forehead. He answered, that is God answered me, the sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. They say the Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see. 
So I will not look upon them with pity or on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. One could argue that Ezekiel as a prophet knew that God was doing the right thing. And yet he mourns, he pleads, in fact, that God would not do this. We are reminded of the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, where the Lord tells Abraham, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, I've seen their wickedness, and I'm going to destroy them. And Abraham pleads for them, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Like Abraham, Ezekiel is pleading that God would spare the people. And some were spared, but in both cases, the cities were destroyed. Verse number 11, the task is accomplished. Then the man in linen with the writing kit at his side brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded. Three things stand out in this chapter. Well, I'll come to that in a bit. Let's look at chapter 10. Um, some of the images in chapter 10 are from chapter 1. We won't go over them again. But three things, this is what I want to say, stand out about chapter, in chapter 10. The first is that the man in linen is told to fill his hands with burning coals from the cherubim and scatter them over Jerusalem. There is the throne of God that is on this sea, like glass, and you have the four creatures holding it up. He is to go in between them, and he's to take coals that are burning and then scatter them on Jerusalem. Now, the first thought is that's judgment. God is judging them. He's pouring out coals. But it also is a form of purification. Remember Isaiah's story? It's like, I, I can't be a prophet. I have unclean lips. And one of the seraphs took a piece of a coal, a burning coal, and touched his lips with it. It was a sign of purification. Um, but I think it is also to instruct the people, as God said, I am the Lord. The second thing, and this is perhaps the most interesting to me, is that we now are told that the four creatures we saw in chapter one, we, didn't, we just thought they were weird. Now we find out they are actually cherubim. That the four creatures are in fact cherubim. Okay. Well, why didn't Ezekiel tell us that in chapter 1? Okay. Well, because he didn't know they were. If you look at verse number 20 here in chapter 10, these were the living creatures I had seen beneath the God of Israel by the Kibar River, and I realized that they were cherubim. So Ezekiel doesn't know everything right at the beginning. He learns as he goes along, and he finds out, oh, that first vision I had 14 months ago, those were cherubim. As a priest, he would not know what cherubim looked like because he could not go into the Holy of Holies. Now he realizes what they are. And then the third thing in chapter 10, there's a new aspect of judgment. God's leaving. That's it. He's had it with his rebellious people and he is going to leave. This is mentioned further in chapter 11. So if you look at chapter 11, verses 22 to 25, 
Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings, and the glory of God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylonia in the vision given by the Spirit of God. Then the vision I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles everything the Lord had shown me. The Lord leaves the Ark of the Covenant and goes to the front of the temple, and then he leaves the city of Jerusalem. That is by far the greater punishment. There's a certain irony here also. In chapter 9, verse 9, the people said, the Lord has forsaken the land the Lord does not see. Well, yeah, now he is going to leave, but he does in fact see. We may fail to recognize that there is no greater judgment, no greater punishment than for the Lord to leave us. In the story of Samson, when Delilah cut his hair and told him, the Philistines are upon you, he got up to fight them, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. And he was captured. In the story of Eli's daughter-in-law, the Ark of the Covenant is taken by her husband and his brother into battle thinking it's like a good luck charm. They can win the battle against the Philistines. They lose. The Ark of the Covenant is taken. Eli hears the news. He falls over and breaks his neck. His daughter-in-law goes into labor. She goes into labor. And she delivers a son. But she dies. The, The birth was too traumatic and she dies. But as she's dying, well, let me read to you. Um, As she was dying, the the women attending her said, don't despair, you have given birth to a son. As you die, just remember, you, you had a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the Ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark has been captured. You may know the name Ichabod from Ichabod Crane, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. That's where the name comes from, and it means God's left. The glory is left. And there can be no greater punishment than for that to happen. Now we come to chapter 11. And it deals with another vision. If you look at verse number one. Then the spirit lifted me up and brought me to the gate of the house of the Lord that faces east. There at the entrance to the gate were 25 men. And I saw among them Jazaniah, son of Azur, and Pelatiah, son of Beniah, leaders of the people. It's not clear because we saw in chapter eight there were 25 people who turned, 25 men who turned their back to the temple and then worshiped the sun. We don't know if these are the same men. Okay. Verse number two, the Lord said to me, son of man, these are the men who are plotting evil and giving wicked advice in this city. They say, will it not soon be time to build houses? This city is a cooking pot and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy son of man. You keep reading and I must confess to you, I don't know what the issue was, why God was angry with these 25 men. They came up with an evil plot, but we don't know what it is. Some people were saying, some people say, they're saying, things are going to get better. They're going to get better. Others were saying, 
everything's okay. What are you worried about? Some argue that in fact they were saying, we have enough people, we don't want the guys from Babylon to come back. Whatever it was, God was unhappy with them. And as a result, we see that Pelatiah dies. If you look at verse number 13, Ezekiel 11, verse number 13. Now, as I was prophesying, Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell face down and cried out in a loud voice, Ah, sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel? Um, God's unhappy, and the implication is he kills Pelatiah, like he did Ananias and Sapphira. And Ezekiel, again, is pleading for mercy. He falls on his face and asks, that God would spare the rest of Israel. And in verses 14 to 21, we have a message of hope, that in fact, God would not wipe out his people. Verse 14, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, your brothers, your brothers who are your blood relatives and the whole house of Israel are those of whom the people of Jerusalem have said, they are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. In other words, Pelatiah and them were like, Hey, they're in exile. They're the bad guys. We're here. This is all ours. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they've gone. Therefore, say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. But for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on them on their own heads what they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. This message, in a word, is grace. God, in fact, is going to spare them. He's going to scatter them. They're going to be scattered not only in the Babylonian Empire, but throughout the Mediterranean Basin. But one day, he would bring them back. One day, he would bring them back to the Promised Land, and they would remove all their idols. And he would change their hearts. Their hearts of stone will be now a heart of flesh. God will do a work in their lives. The result is... They will be my people and I will be their God. How can this be? It's an act of grace. It is only by God's grace that this happens. Ezekiel then is taken back to the exiles in Babylon and he tells them what the Lord told him. I showed them, or I told them everything the Lord had shown me. Several things for us to consider. And if, if there's nothing else that you hear from the sermon, this is the one I want you to hear. And that is the fact of individual responsibility. The vision of the seven executioners in chapter 9 points to personal responsibility. The man in linen with a writing kit, he is to go and mark on each one's head if they in fact mourn over the sin of Judah, of Jerusalem. Others, if they don't have the mark, the six executioners are to kill them. 
Each one bears responsibility for their own action. I think in our world today, individual responsibility is something that is ignored. People would rather protest about systemic this or institutional that, instead of saying, I am responsible. I, in fact, must treat people with compassion. I am to show love. I am to show charity toward them. And then when we have people who blame the victim, you know, who play the victim card, it's because of this, they, in fact, are washing their hands of any personal responsibility. And chapter 9 tells us, listen, you are responsible. We will see this when we come to chapter 18, which God said, the soul that sins, it will die. The father won't die for the son. The son won't die for the father. It's each person dies for their own sin. And what about Pelatiah, verse 13, chapter 11? Of the 25 guys, one died, but we're told his name. He was responsible, and God killed him. I think this is a message our society needs to hear. You are responsible. You cannot blame somebody else for your actions. You must take personal responsibility. By the way, when people protest systemic this or institutional that, they're basically saying, I'm not responsible. They put it on someone else, something else. And Ezekiel, if there's nothing else we get from Ezekiel, it is this. You are responsible for your actions. And the second thing that we should get from this is Ezekiel's compassion. For all the wickedness and the sinfulness of God's people, he has compassion on them. Twice we read in our passages today, he fell face down crying out, Ah, sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel? We hear the same thing from Abraham when he prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham had to know how wicked the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were. Ezekiel is shown how wicked the people of Jerusalem are, and yet both men have compassion, and they plead to God for the lives of these people. They do not condone the actions of the people, but they have compassion on them. It's pretty amazing because um, in chapter 11, it's, they're like, yeah, we don't, those exiles, yeah, they should stay there. Jerusalem is ours. Ezekiel's one of the exiles. Boy, I, I don't know that I'd be feeling too much compassion. Why does he feel compassion? It's the third thing we see in our lesson today. And it's God's grace. God is gracious. There is a message of hope. And Ezekiel has compassion because God is gracious. And we are to have compassion because God has been gracious to us. For all our own personal sin, for all the wickedness we see around us, we are to be filled with compassion and pray that God would be gracious to those around us. So I said at the beginning, this happened in a particular place at a particular time. This isn't in a galaxy far, far away. This isn't Star Wars. If you're into science fiction, this isn't Dune. This is about people on this planet. And the application is very real, that we need to take to heart, that we are responsible for our actions. And God will call us to account. We are to be compassionate for those around us. 
because God is a God of grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we struggle through the book of Ezekiel, the various images, and just a different way of thinking, may we take to heart the lessons that are there. That you do not blame us for other people's actions, you call us to account for our actions. Each individual is responsible for his or her actions. Pelatiah died for his actions, not somebody else's. We live in a society where we are surrounded by people pointing the finger at someone else, at institutions or systems, or other people's actions, that we are victims we are responsible. Help us to see that. At the same time, we are not to be hard-hearted and point to people and say, well, you're responsible. We are to be compassionate as Ezekiel was, as Abraham was. Ezekiel falls face down and pleads for these people, which is quite amazing, as wicked as they were. We should feel compassion for those around us and pray for them and plead that you would be gracious and pour your spirit out and save the people. To be compassionate is not something we're capable of doing on our own. It is because you have been gracious to us that we can be gracious to others. Help us to see this. And may we look to you for strength not trust in our own ability, which we do not have, to be gracious. But as you have loved us, may we show that love to others. Holy Spirit, we pray you give us understanding as we go through these difficult passages. And may we not be hearers only, but doers of the word. May we take these truths and apply them to our hearts and our lives. I thank you for bringing us together today, for bringing back Oscar to us, Tim and Kim. We're so grateful for that. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.